So, I'm not trying to be Andrew. I don't want to take his place. He always has an object lesson, but some of you may know what this is. All of you will know by the end of the service. Because my, my, in my last point, we're going to talk about what this guy is. So you have that to look forward to. Okay, could we uh, stand together in honor of God's word? We are, we are starting a new series called Uniquely Luke. And this is, uh, this is the first one. You're here right at the beginning. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We humble ourselves not just before your word, but before your spirit. We, we recognize that the anointing within is the one that teaches us. So Lord, would you come and apply to each one just what they need to hear today. Meet with us, change us, help us leave this place knowing that Jesus is alive and that we are in him and that we're changed by him. And um, Father, if there's any burdens in this place, would you lift them? so that we can focus on you now. Um, make this time holy, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So why is this series called Uniquely Luke? Well, I had decided we were gonna do Luke the rest of the year. And so I go off on my study leave and I'm thinking about putting together something for the whole year and I realize Luke is way too long to fit in a year. There is so much in the book of Luke. But then I got an idea. Luke is one of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic, synoptic means to view together. They cover the same range of things in Jesus' life. John is a complementary gospel. It's written much later. And he, he's not trying to do the same thing Matthew, Mark, and Luke are doing. He's doing something different, but these are the ones you view together. And so they, sh they share a lot of the same stories. And when you read them together, you can get all of the details on a story um, through different eyewitnesses that reported something different or focused on something else. Or, and so a lot of it you read together. But in the book of Luke, there are 27 stories or parables that only Luke tells. They're not in Matthew or Mark or John, they are uniquely Luke. And so 27 of these. And so then I'm looking at the calendar for the year and all of the guest speakers we have and the times the staff is speaking. And, and it turns out that I'm speaking 27 times before Christmas. And so I am like, okay, I am doing this series. And so I say to the staff, you guys can preach whatever you want to as long as it's from the Bible. Um, so uh, we will be doing this series, Uniquely Luke. All right, first, my first two points are going to go so quick. First, the author. Luke never says, I am, hi, I am Luke. I'm writing this gospel. He never, his name is never given. 
However, there is an abundance of external evidence and internal evidence that Luke is the author. Luke was the traveling companion of Paul. He was in, in Colossians 4, he calls him the beloved physician. So he, he's not a pastor, he's a doctor. He is a Gentile. He's the only Gentile that writes in the New Testament. He is Paul's companion. And because of that, it's kind of, it's very linked to Paul. Paul's heart is all over the book of Luke. What do we mean by when we say external evidence? External evidence means the church fathers starting in the second century all say Luke wrote this gospel. There's no one else that's ever been suggested that wrote this gospel. They said Luke did it. It was Luke's companion. When we say internal evidence, that is within the text. It's obviously a companion of Paul because halfway through he wrote both Luke and Acts, in fact, Luke Luke and Acts is one document with two parts. They're both to this guy named Theophilus, which we'll talk about that in a second. But halfway through Acts, Luke at Troas, the account changes from Paul and they and them to we and us. It is one of his companions. Acts ends with Paul in prison. It's his first imprisonment. It is before the the second imprisonment where there was the horrible persecution in Rome. So scholars put it about 62 to 65 AD is when Luke and Acts were written. Secondly, the audience. So the audience is this guy named Theophilus. He is a believer in Christ. Luke says, I'm writing so that you might know for certain that which you already believe. So it's, it's, it's to a believer. Secondly, he's called most excellent Theophilus. This specific title was used for legal people. It's used two other times by Luke in the book of Acts. Most excellent Felix, most excellent Festus. These are Roman governors, Roman judges, people connected to the Roman legal system. We will talk more about that. Thirdly, who is it written to? Theophilus means, the name means, loved by God or the beloved of God. So how cool is it that the Holy Spirit would pull this thing out of its historical context and say, this is written to everyone that God loves. It's written to one guy, Theophilus. And I think that's how the Holy Spirit wants us to read the book of Luke. It's just for you, beloved. It is God's love letter to you. So that's point one and point two. Now we're in point three. Isn't this going fast? The purpose, he's got a number of purposes. Number one, to strengthen believers. I am writing this, Theophilus, so that you might know with certainty that which you already believe. You've already had an encounter. You are born again. You've had an experience. 
but I want it to be established in your heart. I want you to know the facts. I want you to know the history. I want you to know everything that the eyewitnesses said. So that which has been experienced in your heart can be solidified in your mind. When I first got saved, I was so concerned about falling away. And the reason why was because of pride. I was from, am from a family of intellects, love to argue, love to consider ourselves smart and, and just lots of stuff up here. And I knew something very real had happened to me. And I was afraid of my mind. I was afraid that I would talk myself out of it. <laughs> And that I, that I would lose it. So I, my, the, I didn't really know what to do with my mind. I, 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 doubts would come in. And I'm just like, nope, not going to think about that. And then I read a book by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. And it was addressing the mind. It was addressing the facts around Christ's resurrection and that this was logically true. And something happened in me. I'm like, oh my, this is not just true because I've had an experience. This is like true for everybody. Like this is the truth. This is, this is everybody's truth, not just my truth. And, and since that time, I have just made it a mission to help believers love God, not just with their heart and their emotions, but love God with their mind. The Bible says we're to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. Our minds are not enemies. Our minds need to be engaged. They need to be part of this. And God is happy to have you ask questions. It is how you get, how you grab a hold of truth by being willing to ask questions and dig in. And so the mind is limited, of course, because God is way bigger than our puny little minds. And so most of what you get from God has to come by faith. But God doesn't contradict our minds. He doesn't make you set aside your mind so that you can believe. And so he is addressing not just the heart in the book of Luke, but the facts. So why did he write Luke? One, to strengthen. Why did Luke Right, first to strengthen believers. Secondly, to defend Paul in his defense of the Christian faith to Rome. So Paul is on trial. We have three different trials of Paul in the book of Acts. We have him before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council. And then we have him before Felix, which is a Roman governor. Then we have him before Festus, where he brings King Agrippa in. And we have all three trials are in the book of Acts. What's interesting is what's on trial is not just Paul, it's the Christian faith. It's everything about the Christian faith. And so he's writing to this guy that is a, a legal guy, per, perhaps his defense attorney or somebody that's going to represent him in some way. And he's saying, here are all of the facts. Now, why do some scholars believe this? It's because once you get through the story of Luke and then the story of the early church, once Paul is introduced, you don't hear about anybody else except for Paul. 
And all three trials are given and what was said at the trial, what the charges were. And Paul shares his testimony three different times in Luke because it's reporting what he said when he was brought before the kings, brought before the rulers. And Jesus said, don't prepare in that day. Um, I'm going to bring you before kings and leaders and rulers. And the Holy Spirit will teach you in that day what, what to speak. And so we have his testimony several times. Luke was, did not walk with Jesus. So he's not an eyewitness in that way. Mark wrote on behalf of Peter, the early church tells us. So that's an eyewitness. Peter is having Mark write it all down. The story is Peter. Matthew, of course, one of the disciples. John, one of the disciples. Luke isn't. Luke didn't walk with Jesus. So Luke takes everybody's accounts. Luke had access probably to Mark and to Matthew. But he went to the apostles. He talked to Mary. He sat down with people because back then, as today, eyewitnesses are very important. No hearsay. It's got to be the eyewitnesses. But the 12 apostles are special. Apostle means sent one, and they certainly were the first ones sent. But they are also the ones that were charged with protecting what happened. In Acts chapter 1, of course, written by Luke as well, he tells the story of how they replaced Judas. What Judas needs to be replaced, because there has to be 12. We'll talk about why there had to be 12 in a second. But here was the qualifications necessary to, to, to be one of these. You had to have been there when John the Baptist preached. You had to have been there the entire ministry of Jesus. You needed to see the death on the cross and the empty tomb and the risen Christ. Oh, you, had to, you had to witness all of it. Why? Because they are not just witnesses like you and I are witnesses. They were the eyewitnesses for all of us. Just like today, people can change a story. They can either water it down and make it less than it was, or they can exaggerate it and make it more than it was. These guys were the watch. They, they watched over the story that it would stay pure. What we have here in these Gospels is exactly what happened from the eyewitnesses. It happened. Luke says, and he's, 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 he starts this thing by helping us to grasp what's going on. I am now going to give an orderly account of what has been fulfilled God's plan for all of the ages was lived out and performed and, and fulfilled in our lifetime. And this is going to be the story. The 12 tribes of Israel are now giving way to these 12 apostles. It, it, that's why there's 12, is because it, it's not a new thing. It is connected to the old thing. It is one story Jesus came into history, and so the 12 connects it to the 12. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 21, it says that the, when, the, when the heavenly city comes down, that there are 12 gates. Each gate is a, is a single pearl, and the name of one of the tribes of Israel is on each one of the 12 gates. And the foundation stones have the 12 the names of the 12 apostles. This is the whole people of God, the whole story of God. And it, it came to pass in human history. So, Paul, so, 
So Luke says to Theophilus, I'm going to give you an ordered account. It's really important that we understand when we read the Bible to understand the genre that it is in. There is an audience that, that they had that they were writing to with their own purpose. And it's, it's not necessarily the way we would do it today. It's not the way we would think about it today. For instance, Mark, Mark is written as a proclamation. It was a proclamation of good news. A Roman emperor, when they conquered a new area, new city, a new people, there would be a proclamation of the good news and they would lead all the captives in and everybody, there'd be a big parade and everybody would cheer. And Mark is writing to Rome and he does it like a proclamation of a king has conquered. A king has conquered death and sin and he has, his kingdom has come. And Mark is very concise and very to the point. He's not worried about anything being in order. He's just saying, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Boom, 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 boom. That is Mark's gospel. Matthew is written to the Jews. Matthew is convincing Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. That is the reason why he's writing and it's a warning to Jews about the judgment that's coming on Jewish people. We just did all of the parables in Matthew, and it's the fear of God, really, because all of the judgment that would come for those who reject the stone that God has chosen. And Matthew's all about the Jews and about warning the Jews and about, about reaching the Jews and connecting into the Old Testament, and that's what Matthew's doing. Luke is the only one that is really doing history that says, here's how it began, and here's an orderly account, event by event, of what happened. For instance, in Luke chapter 3, he says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of of Eturia and Triconitus and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And then he says, Jesus was about 30 at this time. All of these people are people in history. All these people have been verified by external. Every one of their titles is exactly those titles. He is saying, this happened in history. This is not a story somebody made up. Here, these are the people that were in the story. They are real people. It happened. Yeah, praise God for Luke. Thank you, Luke. So he is giving us this account. He's giving this defense. And then he wants to establish Christians in the truth, in the facts. And then finally, Luke is written to proclaim God's love for each person. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Luke, in Colossians 4, is called Paul's beloved friend, the physician. And he carries Paul's heart that the gospel is the answer for everyone. This thing is not just Jewish. This is for everyone in the mouth of Simeon, Luke 2, 30 through 32, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation 
for the Gentiles. It's broken out of being a Jewish thing to this is for the whole world. It came through Israel. It came through the Jewish nation, but it's for everybody. In Acts chapter two, it's still Luke writing to Theophilus. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This is for everyone. It is God's love for all people. But then interestingly, it's God's love for one person. It's written, I think significantly, to one person. There are all of these stories that are one person. It's all about the one. It's all about God's love for one. This is the great engine of Paul. He says, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the engine that runs Paul. Paul is convinced that the love of God, a revelation, an experience with the love of God is what will fill the church with the fullness of God. You want to have revival? This is, this is where it comes. He says, I'm praying for you that you might know, this is Ephesians 3, know, and the word there, know, is know by experience the love of God, the height, length, width, and depth of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Then you will be filled with all the fullness of God. For you and I to be more filled with God, we, we need to have our hearts filled up with his love for the one. So we'll look at all these stories that are uniquely Luke. One of them that I want to mention because it's the theme of all of, all of Luke's gospel is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a, is a chief tax collector. He's the worst of the worst. Chief tax collector would be similar to the head of the mafia. <laughs> okay, He's bad, but he's the head of the bad. I mean, it's bad. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I need to have dinner with you today. Come on down out of that tree. And, and everybody's grumbling, not just the Pharisees, his own disciples. Lord, you have no idea what you just did because to, to sit down at a table expressed acceptance of somebody. And he, how can you possibly accept him? It's gonna be bad. It's gonna be bad for you, bad for our ministry, bad for our message, bad for everything. Don't do it, don't do it. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. And of course, by the time he gets to the ground, he's already repenting and saying, oh God, forgive me. And Jesus says this when they get back to the house, they're at the table. He says, this is Luke 19.10, and this is the theme of the entire book of Luke. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And it's interesting because Israel, the, the Jewish people or the church today has no problem with him saving the lost. As long as the lost are sorry, as long as the lost are coming to church and saying they're sorry and repenting, then, okay, we'll let them get saved. But what bothered them was that he loved them and expressed kindness and acceptance to somebody that wasn't changed yet. That's called seeking the lost. That's called loving people where they are unconditionally. So guys, if you, yesterday afternoon, Alice and I saw the movie Jesus Revolution. Please do yourself a favor and go see that movie. Or as soon as it comes out in DVD, get it and rent it or whatever. Netflix, I don't know where it will be, but watch it. 
It is the story about the Jesus people in the late 60s and early 70s. It's, it's framed by Time Magazine's articles. The first one in 1968, Is God Dead? And then at the end, the, the, in 71, Jesus is alive and it's happening all over the, the nation and there's just this tremendous awakening, but it was all around loving people that don't look like us, loving people that you think are beyond God's grace, loving people that are going insane and Jesus taking those people, not only saving them, but making them the evangelists, making them the ones that are gonna bring in the harvest. And guys, we're in a time of awakening. We are in a time, it's already happening on several college campuses. It is, a, we're, I don't wanna be left out. I don't want our church left out. Um, come on. We were down in Mexico and uh, we, we had time with Josh and Ann, did ministry with Josh and Ann, and then we had a vacation on the beach, it was wonderful. And then I, they all went back to Josh and Ann's and I went over to Suwayo to be with Holly and Noe and the church there with Pastor Joel and Vicki were at our missions conference. And I just love Pastor Joel and Vicki. They're just amazing people. But we're sitting down at the first dinner together. And I said, so tell me what you're preaching lately. And he said, well, he said, I'm doing a series out of Ezekiel 47 called River Rising. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Come on, God, let's do this. Um, it's happening. Make sure you're part of it. Uniquely Luke. The prodigal son is called the gospel within the gospel. It is the whole message of God's love is in, in that story in Luke 15. And it's interesting because the first story in Luke 15 is about a shepherd whose sheep has wandered and it's far away. And the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes after the one that's lost until he finds it. It is not a story of the, the sheep finding its way back. It's the shepherd going after this sheep and finding it and bringing it back. And of course, this is the picture of the prodigal son, that, that no matter how far someone is morally from God, you can't be far from God physically because God's everywhere. We live and move in his presence. But you can be far morally from God and you can be way, way gone and think God has no interest in me because I'm so irreligious, I'm so blasphemous, I'm so addicted, I'm so dark, I'm so horrible. And God's like, yeah, I know all about that. I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you. Well, the second story in Luke is about a woman who's lost a coin but that coin is lost, not far away, it's lost in the house. It is right here in the house somewhere, but it's lost. And this is a picture of the older brother. Sometimes people haven't gone far away, they still come to church, still going through the motions, still doing their duty, but they're lost in church. And Jesus goes after the one that is stuck in just religion and performance. And he goes after, and he, he, he goes out to the 
older brother, just like he goes out to the prodigal. God loves you. Whether you're far away, whether you're stuck in religion, whatever, whatever your situation is, here's what I want you to know. God loves you. In Luke 7, we have this woman who has committed horrible sin. We're not told exactly what it is, but she's got a really bad reputation, and she comes into this Pharisee's house, uninvited, and starts weeping at Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee's like, if he knew who this was, da-da-da-da-da. And Jesus says, whoever is forgiven much is going to love much. And this is a theme all the way through Luke, is all the people that were cast out in that society, women, children, tax collectors, get, get away. This is for the religious. And Jesus goes to everybody that it's not supposed to be for. <laughs> and says, no, no, this is for everybody. However you feel about yourself, you need to know this. This is for you. I am the answer for you. So last Sunday morning, I am in Sawayo, and it's Pastor Joel and Vicky's church. They had had a Saturday night service there, too, that their youth pastor preached, because they took me to a place an hour and a half away to do something else, because Pastor Joel wanted me to. Anyway, I was just speaking the whole weekend. It was, it was kind of fun, actually. I was either speaking, praying, sleeping, or eating, literally, the whole weekend. They had me, their Bible school the faraway church, then Sunday morning, that church, then we did the teenagers that night, and then we did the pastors the next morning, and then we were going back to get me to the next place. So I was kind of like, it was just a God, totally God. Anyway, let me tell you about last Sunday morning. It was so precious. So I was doing the sermon. Here's why, you, here's why pastors like preaching other places. You don't have to come up with a fresh sermon. You can use your best stuff from here. <laughs> You, thank God. You don't have to make something else up. You just, I, this works. This will work. So I did the message that I did called Come As You Are. It was from the Song of Songs. It was the first message I did this year. And it was about experiencing emotionally, experiencing God's emotions for you. It's about God, God coming and, and you grabbing a hold of the love of God. And, uh, and I told about... Um, Valentine's Day. Turned out this year, Valentine's Day fell on a Tuesday. And so many of us were here at the prayer meeting on Valentine's Day. And I'm sitting over there. We're in the middle of worship. And I get this picture. I don't know if you're going to appreciate this or not, but I, I came and shared it. The Tuesday night prayer meeting. And it was about Cupid's. Cupid's bow and arrow, and, and he would shoot that arrow to a heart, and it would awaken love. The, the arrow would awaken love. And so I was telling the, the, the congregation there in Sawayo that, that oftentimes when we think about arrows being sent, we think about the enemy. The enemy shooting these fiery darts, and that we raise, the, we raise the shield of faith to quench the darts of the enemies, and certainly the enemy does send lies, and we got to protect ourselves. But but there is an arrow that God sends that pierces through all of the armor and all of our defenses and everything that, that awakens God's love in our heart. Romans 5, 5 says that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our, our hearts. And so Holly was my interpreter. And so we get to the end and 
I do a salvation call for those that want to get saved. And there's 300 there and probably 50 of them raised their hand for salvation. And they were trying to respond to God. That's great. Because it certainly, they were probably mostly all Christians already, but they just, they wanted to be more Christian. Anyway, and then I did this. Had them all close their eyes, all bow their heads, all put their hands in their seat position. And I just started praying for the glory of God to fall in that place. And I said, now, if, if the tangible presence of God is weighing on you, you can, you're having trouble standing up right now. That's God's invitation for more. Just step out right now and come to the front. 200 people came forward. Guys, it was insane. It it was just jammed. There were just people everywhere. And Joel had told me, I try to get the ministry teams to come up. And Joel was like, you can bring them up all all you want to. They're all going to want you to pray for them. It's it's not going to work. It was the easiest ministry that I've ever done. Seriously. They were all, I just had to bless what God was already. God's already doing something increase and boom, boom, boom. They're just, but what it was, it was God sending arrows of his love and affection to heal these hearts. So let me tell you about what this thing is. Let's talk about what this is. So I have some rules, some kind of just internal laws of things that my dear beloved wife violates. (laughs) One of them is, and she knows this, this is one of my rules, you never buy shoes online because it doesn't matter what size they say it is. You, You can't buy shoes that way. You need to try shoes on. But she sees me, she sees needs, she goes online and she just buys things. And she has no problem sending things back if they don't work. And I am like, once it's here, I'm going to make it work. <laughs> and so, so I've got these shoes. Are these nice shoes? You like these shoes? Alice, pick these up. Yeah. They're actually kind of old now, but they, this happened a while ago. And so she's like, how are they? How are they? And I'm like, well, they'll, be, they'll, they'll be fine. The truth was, they're very tight. Very tight. So we go, out to, we go out to the coffee shop with somebody, and literally, I am in such pain. I have to take the shoes off under the table. I am in pain. Well, it happens at the coffee, randomly, they start talking about these shoe stretchers. I'm like, what? Yeah, you get these shoe stretchers, and you just, it's amazing. You just put them in, you leave them 24 hours, and your shoes are fine the next day. And so we're on our way back. I'm like, I need to get one of those shoe stretchers. <laughs> so you need to buy something else online. So this is my shoe stretcher. Now, it turns out, you're like, oh, well, this would be really handy. Well, it, it, it's not that handy because this is for a 10 and a half male. This only works for one type of shoe. And so does it work? Did it work? It was amazing. We put it in. There's a second, a, a second one of these. You put them in for 24 hours, and then your shoes fit. And it's just amazing how it works. It's, it's not a great investment because you just use it once. So I offered the first service. I said, if you're a 10 and a half male and you've got some tight shoes, come to me. And it's so funny because at the altar call, somebody came up and said, I need, I need the shoe stretcher. 
And I said, all right, be at River Rising tonight. I'll have them there for you. Um, he said, I happen to be a 10 and a half, and I happen to have tight shoes. All right, look at Don, let's do this. So it turns out that sometimes we are wholehearted for God. Everything we've got belongs to God. Everything God, I'm all in. The problem is there's not much left. That our heart has been bruised, it's been broken, it's been afraid, it's been angry, and a lot, everything in this world serves to shrink our heart. And so we're all in, but there's not much left. And so to honor Jesus, to give, to give Jesus more worship and more witness and, and more beauty and more of who we are, we actually need him to put the heart stretcher in. We need him to heal our hearts. He, we need him to expand us. Heal things that were broken. Bring things back that were dead. Pull out the bitterness. Get rid of the fear. Get rid of the, the depression that's been weighing on our hearts. Get rid of that so that our hearts are stretched to be able to receive more and then be able to give more to the world. And so with a group this big, God has a different heart stretcher for just your size, <laughs> just your problem, just your brokenness. He knows exactly your situation and what's gonna work for you isn't gonna work for anybody else. But he, he loves you, he's for you. And it's funny because really all you do is put this thing in and then you just leave it. 24 hours, 24 hours later, that shoe is all better. I, I just, I wanna encourage you to come to River Rising. What River Rising is, is there is no schedule, we're just in God's presence together. We're, ju we're just letting him heal us in his presence. We're just letting the ease of heaven come and we're letting him change us so that there's more of us to give back to him and to give to this hurting world.